Inflation getting higher Makes it hard on the buyer Unemployment on the rise Gasoline issue filled with lies Rent being paid late Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. This episode will be a, kind of a two-for-one episode, I guess. I'm, I'm going to finish up Galbraith's A New Industrial State. I know it's, I'm kind of breaking my rules, but that's okay. I um, you know, got off schedule and I want to finish up this series so I can, can move on to some other stuff, mostly Lovecraft. So we're going to finish up Galbraith in one uh, slightly longer episode today all right so oh and also we're looking at uh so it's like a double to that so we're actually getting two for one plus we're getting the end of my review of the people's republic of walmart by leigh phillips and michael rozorski so um with that introduction out of the way and a recommendation that you go listen to the first two parts of this series let's jump into the into the second half of, of The New Industrial State by John Kenneth Galbraith. Um, now, the thesis of this overall book is fairly simple. It's that the U.S. economy is essentially, um, in, well, in many important ways, at least, if not in every, in, in every specific way, but in many important ways, the U.S. economy is, is planned. And most of the book looks at the different consequences of that planning. Um, we looked at things in the past, such as uh, centralization, vertical integration, uh, capital management, power, the technostructure, which is sort of the, inf- the institutions that emerge there. Um, and we talked a lot in the last episode about, about motivation. How does one uh, get a, f- you know, feel the need to support uh an institution that's that that's might be quite far from their own personal self self interest. So we call that the general theory of of motivation. Um, but anyways, now we are moving on to issues such as um, prices, unions, the role of unions, the role of education, and all these kinds of things. So it's just some really good stuff here. Um, so, but anyways, if, you, if you're reading this book, um, I'm, starting with, I'm starting this episode with chapter 16, um, The Prices in the Planning System. That's just uh, two chapters of the same title um, that, that sort of connect together, exploring prices. Okay, so chapter 16, Prices in the Planning System. Um, essentially, the issue here is how can the planning structure control prices. This is, of course, the thing that it, we, we assume from the beginning in most, you know, basic economics, the, the economic textbooks that, that's full of wrong information. We pick that up. The first thing we learn is supply and, and demand, right? And, you know, Galbraith kind of debunked that long ago in his very first book, American Capitalism, um, or the first book in the series that we're looking at. Um, but nevertheless, you know, it's still a compelling idea, like um, that the market sort of controls prices. 
And so it's not clear how the planning system, the technical structure, can do that much about prices, right? They can't really control supply. How can they control demand? This, it's kind of up, it's, it's not really clear. Um, and then this, the solution, it seems, is oligopoly, right? That has already been established in his book, American Capitalism, that oligopoly becomes a way for um, businesses to consolidate. And in effect, once you have this oligopoly, you can control prices, both the price of the products that you sell and increasingly the prices that suppliers um, charge you for the goods. Because you, especially if you're a single, if they're, if they're like single company or single business suppliers. So, of course, politically, this, the response to this has been anti-monopoly policies. But Galbraith's point of view about this is essentially anti-monopoly policies in the United States have been basically failures, in part because the U.S. never or rarely had that full monopoly that these policies were meant to stop. Um, and instead, they just had these oligopolies. Um, and that's, that's true today, too, right? You know, Disney can buy Fox and, and not really be pressured on... On a monopoly because there's always other film companies out there or whatever nevertheless disney has a disproportionate share of the of the movie market um so basically these anti-monopoly um, policies failed so in practice the planning system because of the size of the firms involved can in effect uh control the price um chapter 17 kind of goes from this general point to the question of how does actually the techno structure play a role in in managing supply and demand, managing prices to actually get this done. And I think what I want to talk about here instead of the technical aspects of it, because that's not really the, you know, the most interesting part here is why does the techno structure need to control prices so much? Why is it so essential? And really what it comes down to is because planning requires such long-term um, consideration, like from the beginning of the conception of a product to its development, to its production, to its distribution, that is a very, very long process, you know, sometimes a year. So if you don't control prices, it's very, very difficult to plan anything, right? If you can't basically know what something is going to cost next year or, or, or what something will cost even five or six years down the line. So that's the essential reason why the techno structure needs to, to control prices. The how of it is essentially tied up into oligopoly and the realities of, of oligopoly. Right. Another reason why is just because there's a general conservatism in in the technostructure. And it's something I sort of talked about um, last time a little bit about about the the fact that we don't necessarily get these big outbreaks in technological development the way maybe we did a century ago. And and the thought here, and Galbraith gets into this a little bit, the thought may it may be because of this overall conservatism of firms. Uh, of this size and the techno structure itself that is mostly concerned with the survival and its survival is very intimately tied to to prices so um, quote stable prices reflect in part the need for security against price competition under modern industrial conditions the seller has rarely a single price more often the firm has an infinitely complicated schedule for all the models grades, styles and specifications that comprise its offerings end quote so that, that's really the kind of the how of it in a way but it also suggests the the, the why, which is security for the firm itself. So then chapter 18 is sort of an extension of this and it's called the management of specific demand. And basically this is where the book I think gets more controversial 
and a little bit more challenging to notions of democracy and freedom of choice and all that. Um, and just to be a side note here, I just watched the film with my students, Food Inc., which I think is a pretty good documentary about the food system and its problems. Um, and of course, it's centralization, just a handful of meatpacking plants, a handful of food companies control the market. That's very much kind of the stuff Galbraith is talking about here. Um, but the solution they have is essentially consumer choice, right? You vote three times a day with your meals. That's the thesis of it. And therefore, you need to vote for better food and that will the, and, and that will translate into better policy. I'm not convinced that's good enough um, simply because of, uh, in a sense, this chapter, what this chapter says. Uh, so it's called the management of specific demand. And so the question is, how do you control consumer behavior? If you care so much about prices, you have to care just as much or not, if not more so about the long-term spending habits of consumers, because how can you plan? How can you provide products for them? You know, in an affluent society, how can you encourage people to buy what you're going to produce? You may, you may start developing something and it'll be on production in a year or two years or six months, whatever it might be. You got to know there's a market for that at the tail end of it. And so what, how do you do this? Well, advertisement obviously becomes the way. There's other ways too, but primarily what Galbraith here talks about is advertisement as the major way in which consumer behavior can be manipulated and controlled by the planning system. And I hear, here's where people will disagree. They could say, well, you don't have to even shut off the ads. You don't have to listen to the ads. You don't have to buy the stuff. No one's putting a gun to your head. And, you know, maybe, I, I don't know. I, I, I do think there is such a thing as manufacturing consent. I do think there is such a thing as, as advertisements shaping our perspective about what is valuable and what is good and what is beautiful and, and what one needs to have, right? Now, that said, advertisement may have some beneficial outcomes, right? Right? Uh, you know, it provides f essentially a lot of free media, I suppose, um, or, or lower cost media. Media is cheaper than it would be if we had to pay for the, the whole cost of it. Um, but I'm sure there's other ways to do that. I'm not sure advertisement is the best way to fund media. It might be actually one of the worst. But anyways, um, this is his chapter on advertisement, so it's, it's worth looking at. And he goes a little bit farther. He's, he actually has a section here where he talks about the social function of ads. And especially in the second half of this book, The New Industrial State, Galbraith gets a lot into the social, social engineering, in a sense, and this relationship between society as a whole and corporation. And that... Uh, gets to some pretty profound stuff, I think. Well, but anyways, his general statement about advertisement is this. Quote, the purpose of demand management is to ensure that people buy what is produced, that plans as to the amounts to be sold at the controlled prices are fulfilled in practice. Not all advertising and selling activities directed to this end. In fact, or this fact has the polemical importance hitherto observed, for it is readily possible to cite forms of advertising or sales effort which are unrelated to the purpose of demand management and industrial planning. Um, that's a certain mode of advertising that of no classified ads in the department square displays has no great purpose beyond that of conveying information or advertising the public that a particular person or enterprise has seized item for sale and at what price end quote i mean that's that's a distinction without a big difference i think but i do think there is a deeper point which he doesn't quite get into here which is a lot of advertisements about selling the corporate image and selling the corporation as a good thing right sell you know walmart's a good neighbor kind of um, advertisement. Um, so 
you know, responding to criticisms which certainly exist out there of corporations. Um, but there's a broader social function and everything from, you know, directing what we think is beautiful to, you know, he doesn't go that, that far. He's not like a, he's not a, uh, an ad buster in any sense, but he does acknowledge the social function of ads. And I think it's important to, to point that out. Okay, chapter 19, the revised sequence. So this is kind of a turn in the book. Um, you know, these chapters are kind of arranged on a theme, like prices and demand was the theme of the last few chapters. And uh, the revised sequence kind of moves, is part of that conversation, I suppose, but it starts to move into um, a broader issue in the book, which is, I think, are about the nature of freedom. So the way to sum this up is, I guess, I guess this is tied to consumption in a way too. Um, do consumers or society have agency in an economy dominated by these, these large corporations and a technostructure that maybe doesn't share societal's values, society's values? Um, and so our, our kind of economic theory, our, our conventional wisdom, uh, says basically the individual is the ultimate source of power in the economic system. Um, and that for, and then everything kind of evolves from these individual choices that we make, right? But when we see that our, our consumer demand is largely motivated by, by advertising, by, by the media, then it's hard to say we have that agency. Um, and so what he really argues in this chapter is essentially freedom exists as sort of a perception. There's basically the perception of freedom, the perception of choice, right? It's like something said in that Food Inc. movie, how you have you know, 80,000 different things on the shelf, all made by five different companies. Um, you know, quote, it is possible that people need to believe that they are unmanaged if they are to be managed effectively. We have been taught to set store of our, by our freedoms of economic choice. Were it recognized that this is a subject to management, we might at pains to assert our independence. Thus, we would become less manageable. Were instructions in economics supported by the affordable wisdom of the economics textbooks to proclaim that the people are partly in the service of those who supply them, this might cause those who so educated to desert that service. End quote. I'm sure there's some people that do that. I'm not sure how big of a threat it really is, but um, it's an interesting idea that that for this economy to work, we have to have the perception of freedom, the perception of consumer choice. And of course, the planning system creates that in myriad ways. But if we realize that we're not free, if we don't have this choice, then we may react very, very differently to, to these things and actually reject the system altogether. Um, chapter 20, I guess we're still in demand here. Regulation of aggregate demand. This is, so we've seen how this technostructure to advertising through planning can manage individual demand, can manage the, to make sure that a single individual product has demand out there. And, and that it will be purchased. That's a, crucial to the planning system, he argues. But when you look at this, uh, but when you look at aggregate demand, it's more complicated because aggregate demand, of course, is, is corporate spending. Some of that will be managed by the technostructure. You have consumer demand, which we see can be manipulated and controlled. And then you have government demand, right? Those are the three in the Keynesian framework, the three different realms of demand. And of course, in a recession, if corporate spending and private spending go down, you know, you need to have an increase in, in spending in government to make up for that. 
aggregate demand. And obviously, aggregate demand is, a, is something of monetary policy and fiscal policy, right? And, you know, how can corporations manage aggregate demand? They need to, because it's just as important as individual demand for them to manage it. Um, they are hurt by recessions as much as anyone else. Um, now, it's not clear to me exactly how they're able to do this, except influencing government. Um, he says, like, he makes an interesting point here, though, like that the big corporations, the entrepreneurial or the mature corporation, he compares, he's got the entrepreneurial corporation is like the immature small firm. Then you got the modern corporation, that the modern corporation needs more aggregate demand just because of their overall investment, the capital needs they have, the the amount of wealth that goes into making one product, the amount of time, the amount of planning that goes into that. So they're more affected by recessions than the small entrepreneurial firms. Maybe less adaptive, less flexible. All right, we may, I think this part of what he's saying here is we may lose flexibility by, by embracing planning, as much as planning may be necessary given the technology of the day. Now, where is one place that we see a, a, a synergy between public spending and corporate, uh, you know, corporate interests? Well, it's in contracting. And one good example of this, especially at the time Galbraith is writing, is military spending. Military spending, you know, of course, is massive amount of, 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 of what the government spent in those days, right? Um, Cold War years. And of course, businesses provide most of those resources. This technostructure provides those tanks, nuclear missiles, or whatever. So that become by, by having a very, very close relationship between military spending and military production, you end up having some influence over, over, the spend, over aggregate demand, right? But I think ultimately we see a story here of corruption. And, and I don't think Galbraith goes that far. But that's how it seems to me, is that really the only way this works is if the decision about what is taxed and what is spent is made in the interest of the technostructure, not in the interest of the people overall. That's the only way aggregate demand can be managed. I mean, really planned by the technostructure. Uh, of course, uh, part of this would be businesses knowing, having information, having knowledge about what spending will be next year or in the future or have some kind of predictability to that. All right. All right, so then Galbraith gets into the question of, of employment and unions. And I'll try to be um, relatively quick looking at these chapters because they're all sort of related. So the first thing he says here in these, I guess it'll be five chapters for now. So the next five chapters will take as a jump, as a, as, as, as a, as a group. I'll try to do my best to summarize them, is um, he starts out with unemployment, right? And of course, that's the main concern when you manage the labor force is, is unemployment and unemployment. Like, what is it? If you have too much unemployment, then, well, some unemployment is good because it keeps wages down, right? So you want to manage it. You don't want to have full employment necessarily because that's going to push wages um, up. Right. But at the same time, you need to have a trained workforce for your needs, especially the technostructure is going to need skilled workers and well-educated workers. So education becomes a major feature to this managing of the labor force. And overall, this conversation, he talks about the decreasing power and importance of the blue collar worker, you know, compared to the 
to those with more education. Right? I don't know if that panned out, but he was predicting that, you know, certainly we've seen the decline of a lot of blue collar industries. Um, so now on the one side, you have the wage price cycle, right? And of course, you probably heard of this before. I'm not sure how I feel about this. I don't maybe don't know enough to, to talk about it. I, I generally support higher wages uh, across the board for people. I'm, I think workers should have most of what, if all of what they create in wealth. And the way we do that is through more <laughs> higher wages, right? <clears throat> I mean, essentially, you know, it kind of gets into this Malthusian problem, right? Like, you know, workers, you know, produce a lot more than they consume. So the Malthusian logic of workers just as consumers is, is wrong, right? But of course, if we had, you know, socialism, where workers did receive either through, through public goods or through their own, you know, their own consumption through higher wages, you know, they would, they would just be consuming more, you know, but the same amount of consumption would take place, the same amount of production, right? So part of the conversation should be decreasing um, some elements of production, I would think. I don't know, that's a, that's a side conversation that's too complicated and not really the point here. The point here is the wage price cycle. And so here's the fear of rising wages, is that rising wages will then, of course, increase cost of production, and then that will just increase higher, that'll lead to higher costs uh, in businesses and therefore a higher price at the end of, of the process. And then if you raise wages to compensate for that, you're going to get another bump in prices again and again and again. So it has this inflationary effect. Now, of course, inflation is also a feature of the money supply, right? And wages is more of a question of how much money is in the firm and how much is paid out in wages, right? So it's not, it's not necessarily inflating the currency. It's, it's creating a kind of inflationary effect for different reasons. But I'm not sure it can really do that or you know obviously there's still a market for goods to a degree right but the problem here is you have the techno the techno structure and you have oligopoly which is able to set prices essentially so in a and i guess in a perfect market if you had full employment yes costs would go up but corp firms would be forced by the market to still sell their goods for the lowest possible price and they would have to take less profit right but when you don't, when you basically set the price because you're in an oligopoly, you can just pass those increased prices on to consumers. So I'm wondering, here's my concern, maybe an economist out there or someone who knows more about this can tell me if I'm wrong here, but the wage price cycle is more of a problem when you have an oligopoly situation where prices are, are essentially controlled by a handful of firms rather than in a perfect market. Would you have a wage price cycle in a perfect market? I guess that's my question um so then this brings to the question of unions um obviously the techno structure does not like unions does not want unions because in a sense is a a separate domain of planning which competes with their own it also creates problems of high income um and but it also has the benefit of higher spending so you know unions are considered here primarily as something that pushes wages up and that that can be good or bad for the techno structure depending on your point of view um, but then galbraith says okay this is the problem of the union essential and we can see why businesses generally don't like them because of wage price cycle and, and, 
and just higher wages overall. But the union itself is a bureaucracy, and it's a bureaucracy that's hard to get rid of, and it's a bureaucracy that's quite entrenched as part of the industrial system, and since it can be part of the planning system, right? Unions can be a part of production planning. It can be part of worker recruitment. It can be part of worker training. Um, so unions can and sometimes are, he seems to suggest, co-opted or incorporated into the planning system. They can have a role in increasing productivity and, and that can maybe justify higher wages, which is the goal of the union. So they're not entirely uh, necessarily, well, they are antagonistic, but it doesn't mean they can't be part of the planning system in their own special way. And the way he kind of sums up here is, in summary, the planning system has now largely encompassed the labor movement. It has dissolved some of its most important functions. It has greatly narrowed its areas of action, and it has bent its residual operations very largely to its own needs. Since World War II, the acceptance of the union by the industrial firm and the emergence thereafter of the era of comparatively peaceful industrial relations has been hailed as the final triumph of trade unionism. On closer examination, it is seen to reveal many of the features of Jonah's triumph over the whale. So the next uh, part of this story about kind of about unions and the workforce and the wages is education and the scientific estate. And basically the goal here of the technostructure is to create high-tech jobs and the necessity of creating these high-tech jobs and therefore the you know the necessity of some sort of investment in in higher education and to to prepare that that workforce. Now there's something interesting here is that that there's a bit of a fear or a bit of anxiety among the corporate world that you need this but you also create a monster that maybe is not so easy to control necessarily. He writes this, uh, there's a potential competition and conflict between the educational and scientific estate and the technostructure growing out of their respective relations to the state. The members of the technostructure is strongly inhibited in his political role. He cannot divest himself of the organization which gives him being, and he cannot carry it with him into political life. On the other hand, he wields great public influence as, in effect, an extended arm of the bureaucracy. The educational and scientific estate is not inhibited politically by ties of organization, end quote. Obviously, if the technostructure leaves the firm, they're no longer part of the technostructure. They're just doing whatever some other job they're doing, right? You know, in a sense, the technostructure isn't individuals. It's, it's a whole system, right? So it's tied to the firm. But the educational and scientific estate has public interests, public roles that that are broader than that and therefore it can't you know that scientific and technical estate things like universities research centers research academies can't be really totally controlled by the firms and so they're a bit out of their control i think that's a, a an interesting concern or, or or thought maybe it's a bit quaint when we think about how much education now is is in a sense bought and paid for by corporations. And I think the biggest trick, I think I talked about this before, but I think the biggest trick here is how, you know, in the old, old days, in the Middle Ages, apprentices were trained by the masters in the shop. So essentially education was paid for by the producers. Um, the master cobbler, token and apprentice, trained him, supported his life. And eventually when he was good enough, you know, he got his own shop. Um, and replaced him as kind of a social reproduction. Um, and then, of course, in the days of universities, 
it became you got the public university, the land grant college, things like that, where universities were essentially paid for by the public sphere, and you, you know tuition was free or very cheap, and therefore, you know, it was essentially being paid for by business, by the producers through taxes, right? And we've moved away from that model, and now we have the student loan model, where students are forced to pay themselves and go into debt, and then pay back those debts through their wages, um, and. You know, now training is paid for by the students. It, it's not by the not by the state, or not by business via the state, and not by businesses and producers directly. I think it's quite a coup, uh, not a good one, but it's there nonetheless. Now, I know you could say, well, they get higher wages, and so that more than makes up for it. It's kind of paid via the the, the education is paid for retroactively through higher wages, which is fine and dandy unless you work at Starbucks because now you have now business has a reserve army of educated labor working or unemployed or working in jobs they're not trained for um, but they have the reserve workforce which can of course have an impact on wages across the across the economy all right next we move on to another section in, you know in chapter 26 that's where we're up to called the planning system and the state there's actually two chapters called this Planning system in the state one and planning system and the state two. <clears throat> and both of these make the same argument, which is the necessity and cooperation of the state for the planning system to, to work. And some of the examples of this that he gets into are things like the Department of Defense, military spending, defense research and development, and, and essentially other shared goals between the planning system and the and the state itself. There's, there are some points of antagonism between the two, but by and large, they're, they're in cahoots. They, they don't really conflict all that much. He even says like what he calls the revised sequence applies also in public procurement. He writes, industrial planning, as we've seen, requires the control of prices and the management of the consumer. As a result, instruction passes not alone from the sovereign consumer to the producer, it produces also from the producer to the consumer in accordance with the needs of the technostructure. This is the revised sequence. So this is all revised. Revi we've already covered this right um, earlier. You know, basically in the old model, the consumer says, "I want bread." And the producer says, "Well, then I'll make bread." You know, and maybe five producers will make bread, and then you have oversupply, and and so prices go down, and whatever. You know the story. But he he says obviously the revised sequence is no it. Sometimes that happens, but often consumer demand is, 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 is information down, uh, top down. Businesses tell people what they should consume and what they want, what movies to watch, what toys to play with, whatever. So that's the revised sequence. So that's all review. But then he adds this sentence. The revised sequence operates also in the field of public procurement, meaning it's not just government says, I need X. And the business community says, okay, then we'll make X in the same model, right? Just replace bread with tanks or airplanes or whatever. The problem is, is public procurement is also informed by the, the, the technostructure. They're also telling government what they need and what they should invest in and, and what, what they should buy because that's what they're providing. It becomes part of the planning system in its own right. So the government is not autonomous either. The consumer is not autonomous in his in, in Galbraith's framework, but neither is government necessarily. Very chilling, I think. So this all leads, in his view, to a shift in the power of society, which I think is pretty obvious just to see. Um, even a shift in class 
structure and how we understand class. He writes, to a remarkable extent, as we've seen, the planning system absorbs class interests. It also, it does so partially by minimizing the reality of conflict and partly by exploiting the results, resulting malleability of attitudes to control of belief. The goals of the planning system in this process become the goals of all who are associated with it, and thus by slight extension, the goals of society itself. Of course, this is how some people talk about fascism, is, is the, how the corporation, the business, the state, whatever, the corporate state, engulfed class interests. Right? That's uh, a common feature of fascism. Um, of course, Galbraith doesn't dare go that far. He's an economist. He's not a political scientist. But I wonder if he's thinking it, or I wonder if he knows enough about fascism to, to make that leap. Um, so, um, you know, we have an example here of the arms race. He's got a, actually a fairly long chapter called The Planning System in the Arms Race towards the end of the book here. We're really getting to the end here, but um, the planning system in the arms race is a very, very long discussion of why do we have an arms race itself? And it basically comes, and he talks both from the Soviet and the U.S. perspective here. And it basically comes down to is that we have the revised sequence both in both places. And both are being pushed by producers. Both are pushed by the technostructure and their, their, their different societies. He already established in an earlier chapter that socialist planning is essentially not that different from from planning in the capitalist West. You know, it may look different, smells different, but it's essentially the same. Um, so the arms race is, is an extension of the planning system, not true military utility or military necessity, but the necessity of the planning system. Right? Now, what I'm reminded here of is something really fascinating, a, a book, which I really recommend. I think you should read it if you ever get the chance. It's Philip K. Dick's The Zap Gun. I did episodes about it back during my Philip K. Dick series. And in that book, we have an arms race, a fierce arms race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. <clears throat> or maybe it was like a Western and Eastern conglomerate. It doesn't matter. And weapons were developed. And then they'd be immediately, it was called plowshared, which would mean, you know, basically people drafted from the population as the ideal consumer would look at these military technologies and transform them into consumer goods, right? So they'd be immediately, before they were ever produced, be transformed into consumer goods. So the arms race became just a facade for uh, consumer culture, right? And it's kind of like what he's sort of suggesting here, that the arms race itself is not about making weapons that are going to win a war. It's about fulfilling the needs of the planning system itself. Um, so towards the end of the book, he moves more towards society and the social implications of all of this. Um, you know, what is the relationship between the technostructure, as described here, and society overall? Very, very important question for, for Galbraith and I think for us. And he goes so far as to say, like, we, we see essentially a decline in state services under the planning system. And we see a decline in the aesthetics of, of just the value of aesthetics in general. That's really fascinating stuff. Again, he's not like an architectural expert here. But he knows enough to say, like, buildings are getting uglier, parks are getting uglier, you know, everything's getting kind of crappy just to look at it. But more generally, state services have, have declined in atrophied. Now, this is obviously stuff he covered in the, new, oh, the Affluent Society. So this is, is a sequel to the Affluent Society, builds off of it, and it comes to the same conclusions in some areas. So 
state services are going to decline because so much of the resources of society are going into the planning system or controlled by the planning system. Even, even to the degree there is public spending, it's servicing the needs of the technostructure. Like an arms race is an example of that. So we, we get atrophying of the public sphere. We also get an atrophying of, of the aesthetics of, of society, right? Um, and he thinks basically the solution to this is the need for some kind of state regulation about things, that you can't let the technostructure make aesthetic decisions about society. Like what is, and it doesn't just mean here the beauty the buildings. I, I was kind of reducing it to something trivial, but it's deeper than it. It's like, what do we value? That, that's what he sort of means by aesthetics is what do we value in a society? What do we want to spend our resources on? And that ability for us to have a conversation about that has been so atrophied by the technostructure that it has to be taken back. And, and he thinks the solution is some sort of state regulation of, of, of this aesthetic dimension um, of, of life, which is, is probably broadly defined here. But I think he's just referring to like what we value and, and where do we put our resources. Um, connected to this is what he calls the planning lacunae. Uh, lacunae is just a gap, right? So the planning lagune is like where then, well, why not? Why don't we take the, the anarcho-capitalist anarcho, anarcho-capitalist statement that it's best if we just privatize everything. If everything just become uh, extension, uh, just marketize it, right? Everything's free market. Then we'll all be happy. Everything will be great. Um, well, Galbraith says, well, there's a lot that the planning system simply doesn't account for. It doesn't do. There's these gaps in the planning system. For instance, transportation, um, telephone lines, long-distance transportation, natural monopolies. There are many areas in which the planning system just doesn't participate in it. Now, I guess our, our anarcho-capitalists could say, well, that's because the state does it for them, and if the state didn't, the market would take up. I don't know. I, I doubt it. I think, you know, you look at early American history when you didn't, you know, who built the first road? It was government. Who, you know, railroads would not existed without government giving land to the railroads. It's, you know, so, yeah, I think he's right here. I think there are certain things the planning system just not do very well. Affordable housing in cities is one example of something they don't do very well. Okay. Um, he talks about, he has a chapter here on toil, which I think is really, really significant. Uh, you know, one of the, this is just something that we don't hear conversations about as much, you know, especially in conversations about full employment. Um, you know, he's, it's called Of Toil. It's a great little essay. Just saying, like, one of the goals of technological advancement is to eliminate toil, right? But define both as, I think he defines it partially as work that's really odious, but also work in general, right? Why can't we have one, one reason we would want to plan a society, one reason we would want to give so much power to these planners is because it would reduce the work week, because it would mean machines or, you know, could do much of the labor for us, reduce and eliminate toil. He goes so far as to say, quote, emancipation could be the salvation of the planning system. It, you know, in other words, that if it can achieve this goal, 
this might be what keeps people from turning their back on it for all the other reasons we already talked about, like the disconnect between public and private spending, the, the, the planning lacunia, or you know, the fact that we seem to lose our democratic you know, power of choice. What might be the saving grace is that people find, wow, because of all this wonderful planning, I only have to work two hours a day and or one day a week, and I get you know, you know, all this wealth, and the work I do is pretty easy. Obviously, we haven't reached that. You know, I guess maybe some physical, pointless, horrible labor is going away to a degree, but often it's just given to people in other countries or poor immigrants or whatever. You know, meatpacking might be mechanized, but it's still fairly labor intensive and it still has a huge cost in, in the blood, sweat and tears of the working class. Um, so the book ends then with a few other kind of loose ends here. Um, one is education again, and obviously education is necessary to replicate the techno state. But it also is, it's therefore there's an essential need for the planning system to develop education. This is the point Galbraith made in the affluent society. Um, he has a chapter here called the political lead in which he says what government should do then. What's kind of his, this is his policy recommendation um, that comes towards the end of the book. And, and what he essentially argues is government needs to not be an adjunct to the planning system quite as much as it is. Instead, government really needs to invest in education and science and, and therefore not let that become fully, you know, just a service to the technostructure. And then finally, he finishes the book by talking about the future of the planning system. Um, and what does he see? Well, he's being optimistic here. He says, essentially, we need to do three things. One is unify the planning system with the public good in some way. Find a way to bridge this lacuna. Find a way to ensure that the planning system is, is fulfilling public good um, in various ways. Um, second, we need to socialize the corporation more. The, the corporation needs to do more to be integrated into the society. Um, both in the, that's kind of this aesthetic problem he talked about earlier, right? It can't be aloof from social desires and social needs and democracy, essentially. And then finally, liberty. How do you ensure liberty when corporations have so much power? These are the core political and economic challenges. Not, we're not having the challenge of production. I think this, he doesn't quite come out and say it in this book, like he does in affluent society, but it's there. We don't need to deal with production. Production problem solved, by and large. And to focus so much on, oh, we need to give tax cuts to the rich so they produce more. No, 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 that's not the problem. The problem are these things. The problem is the, the corporation is already too powerful. And therefore, we need to restore health to the public sphere in some way. Um, so that's uh, my read through of, of the new industrial state. So this, this sort of counts as two episodes, right? Because it covered about 200 pages of material. Um, but I, you know, whatever. I've been doing a lot of episodes lately and I felt like just finishing up here. I, I got a little behind in my planning and, and I, I, instead of, you know, I just said, let's just finish it. Let's just finish it because I have the time now to do it. Okay, as for the other book I'm reading that's tied to this theme of planning is um, The People's Republic of Walmart. And much of the last 
third of the book, which is the stuff I, this, again, this is a very, very short book. It's audiobook is only like five or six hours. It's only about a hundred pages in the EPUB version I have. So a very, very short book. Um, many chapters are quite short, but um, in the final part of the book, he really takes on the Soviet Union. And I don't know if these are Soviet ex experts in the Soviet economy, but they do seem to pull up a lot of research about it. And the question is, when, and that's kind of the common response you get to people who maybe praise planning is, well, wasn't the Soviet Union planned? You know, and they sucked. You know, I don't think they did, but I'm just saying that's the criticism that usually gets leveled at it. Well, they were horrible. So all planning must be horrible like that. Not just the Stalinistic, the Gulag stuff, but just the idea is like if they planned well, they would have succeeded. They'd be as powerful as Walmart now, right? Or more so. They would, if, if planning works, why didn't the Soviet Union work? And so he gets into the history of this Russian Revolution, they, or they, these authors, get into the history of the Russian Revolution. And one of the first things you realize reading this is that the Soviet Union simply was not well planned because no one knew what they were doing. They were playing it by ear. They were isolated from other societies. Prior to this, they were a czarist, a, like a feudal, well, an absolutist monarch with feudal remnants in its society. I mean, it was it didn't have people who understood steelmaking and, and, and agricultural, you know, production and all that. So now you could say this isn't a very good excuse. Um, for the famine or things like that or the, or the failures of collectivization. But I don't know. I, I think it's useful to mention here at least that if you, want to, if you want to talk about planning, that's the point. If you want to talk about the virtues of planning, the Soviet Union is not a good model, especially in the early years, simply because it wasn't very well planned to begin with. Um, then he gets, so chapter, this is chapter eight of the book. It's called, um, what is it? make sure because it's clever it's a pun on an internet meme it's called hardly autonomous space communism yeah hardly automated space communism this is a pun on the internet meme um, fully automated space communism which is kind of a goal of anarcho socialists on the internet i guess kind of star trek i guess is the, if you need a definition of fully automated space space communism well, they call it hardly automated space communism. But anyways, the argument of this is the Soviet Union eventually did become fairly good planners um, because of the space race um, and because of the needs of, of the, to develop in technology. So the space race essentially made modern Soviet planning that, that was effective. And you started to see increasing growth rates, I mean, better elements of planning. So the planned economy of the Soviet Union wasn't Stalin. It was it was the post-Stalin era, politically corrupt, politically decadent in many ways under the Brezhnev years. But in terms of planning and, and technocracy and this, what Galbraith would call the technostructure, much more effective. And anyways, this they argue included a lot of technology. So uh, this kind of comes to the, the core question that we're probably asking in a book like this is, yeah, planning might be effective, but how do we manage kind of democracy? in planning. And so um, this chapter begins to explore this, right? What is the purpose of the technology? Why is information being collected? What's its function? Uh, how can you have mass big data and democracy? How do you com combine them together? And here's what they write. 
To be clear, a non-market economy is not a question of unaccountable central planners or equally unaccountable programmers or their algorithms making the decisions for the rest of us. Without democratic input from consumers and producers, the daily experience of the millions of living participants in the economy planning cannot work. Democracy is not some abstract ideal tacked onto all this, but essential to its process. And most importantly, computer-assisted, decentralized democratic economic decision-making will not arise as a set of technocratic reforms of the system that cannot, can be simply be imposed. First, there must be a fundamental transformation of the relations of society and structure, including the confection of new networks of independent, interdependence, frameworks that the masses of people will have to fight for, build up, and ultimately sustain. All of this, by the way, we don't get any like blueprint for that. I don't think a book like this can give this blueprint. It's trying to make a much more modest argument that that planning works. The next chapter is called uh, Allende's, let me get it, Allende's Socialist Internet. And this deals with technology as well, but in a more uh, showing how technology can be used to for planning in, in, a, in a more democratic environment, but also then be co-opted by the right. And, and we get to, of course, the takeover of by Pinochet in in the 70s and how that you know then you had cyber strike breaking what they call cyber strike breaking how technology becomes used to suppress the the working class so we're left with the same problem that planning can be used for good or for evil can be used for socialism or just tyranny um and yeah that's that's more or less uh where the book um ends there's a very short couple final chapters one called planning the good anthropocene which is kind of about what what it might look like there's only a few pages where they get into this but things obviously ecology would be part of it obviously we're going to have to think globally it can't just be in one one nation you know we're in a global economy now so that's gonna the planning is gonna have to be at a global scale and things like that but uh you know just they play a little bit with what it might look like. And and then we get to our conclusion, which is essentially that planning works. And I think if you read this book, it's hard to disagree that it works. So, so overall, we have a book here, The People's Republic of Walmart, that does a really good job of showing just how planning functions within big capitalist companies like Walmart and Amazon in particular, but others as well. And we see how effective it is. And the argument, and this is where it really gets tricky, and I think it's maybe difficult for more people to swallow, is one is that to, to admit what Galbraith is saying and what they're saying is that the U.S. economy is fundamentally planned. That's hard for people to accept because they say, obviously, we still live in a free market. Well, it kind of means depends what you mean by free market, right? Yeah, there's not 100% planning out of, out of like the Kremlin what's going to be made, but it's planned somewhere, right? And, and very little happens in the economy that's not somehow planned. So that's, that's kind of empirical, and, and we have to sort of accept that. The question, this is where it really gets troublesome, is how do we co-opt that? How do we take that over? You know, I mentioned in a previous episode, The Iron Heel, Ernst Everhart's call to the grocers that we're not here to restore the mom-and-pop store. We're here to take over the Walmart or the Whole Foods or whatever. We're here to take over that wonderful technology that's been created, that technostructure, that, the, that the, the power of those big corporations. We built it and we're taking it over for the people. We're going to repurpose it. That, how do you do that? 
you know, and how do you do that in a way that remains democratic and faithful to our, our values of socialism and democracy? That is not really answered here, but I do think this book makes a really, really important contribution in telling us that the tools for socialism, specifically planning and the technologies of planning, are there. And, and that should provide us some optimism, I suppose. So uh, anyways, that is, that's it. That's it for this series on John Kenneth Galbraith. Uh, I cheated. I did two episodes in one, but, but whatever, forgive me. Um, so what's next? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I've been recording a lot of episodes. It's now April. Um, I probably, the, the episodes I've recorded recently will probably cover me till, you'll probably be hearing this in July or maybe June. So I don't know if I can leave China to get more books. Um, we'll see. I might have to buy in the Chinese market some Library of America books. Or uh, take a break, focus on Lovecraft, <clears throat> which I do have. That might be an option. I don't know. We'll see what happens when we get to that point. But um, I'm out of books, Library of America books, um, in China for now. So anyways, uh, I will keep you informed. I guess you'll just hear a new episode in this series when I decided what I'm going to do. But anyways, uh, in the meantime, if you have any thoughts about John Kenneth Galbraith, his works, his writing, his thesis, its applicability today, if you have any thoughts about the People's Republic of Walmart, let me know. I would love to hear from you. Um, and send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And that's it for now. I'll be signing out for a while. I'm going to be focusing on Lovecraft for, for the next few weeks, the next couple months. Um, I'm looking forward to that. So hopefully you're listening to the Lovecraft series. And if not, if you don't like that stuff, well, you'll still hear from me shortly. Thanks as always for listening. Either way, it's still the same. Schools are crying too. They can't do the job they want to do. We can go to the moon and float in space. 